This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast feasting on the dark heart of our media landscape and flossing with its bones. Today we're discussing the phenomenon that is Stephen King. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, broadcasting from the distressingly thin membrane separating the familiar from the malevolent beyond. I'm Erica Spires, and I'm currently holding George R.R. R. Martin hostage until he finishes A Song of Ice and Fire to my liking. And I'm Brian Hurt. And in the time it took me to write this intro, Stephen King wrote the first chapter to his next novel. <laughs> yeah, that is a good way to make yourself feel inadequate about your creative endeavors. He claims he wrote the first chapter to the Green Mile during a rain delay at Fenway Park. And it's like, oh man, you suck. Oh my God. He's so good. Yeah, that's what I mean by you suck, is that you're so good. Where are you, Brian, today? you look It looks really creepy, and I feel like you're doing it just for the Stephen King episode. Yeah, this is really too bad we're only in audio, because normally Mark's the only one in a murder basement, but I am legit in a murder basement as well. I am coming at you from Lincoln, Nebraska, in a house where there is a dog barking outside, or I would be in a better place. So instead, I am in the basement where there's a rusty old pipe's What's really nice is there's a bricked up window behind me because, you know, nothing bad ever happened in a basement that had windows, but now they're bricked up. (laughs) Brian is in a better place. But then we get a vision of where he is in the beyond, and it's so horrible we are driven insane. And it's a giant spider. I'm sitting here in a nice soft couch with my new cat sitting next to me. And it's really nice and warm and awesome. And you guys are both in creepy basements. So now that we're in the teens of our podcast, people are getting to know us a little bit. Introduce your cat to everybody. His name's Bastion. (gasps) Kitty! Isn't he pretty? Erica, that is not a cat. (laughs) 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 What in the hell? So originally, I was thinking about doing the uh, intro, doing something about Pet Cemetery because we lost our last cat in May. And was it a very, very old cat? Yeah, he was old. So if you put it in the Pet Cemetery, it would just be waddling around, <laughs> unable yeah. to do much damage anyway. That's true. <laughs> but if we need to transition back to Stephen King, cats, evil, Stephen King, we're back there. Okay. Evil cats. That's right. Here we are. There literally is anything because that is why he's been able to be so prolific is that Like, where do you get your ideas? Look around at any given moment. (laughs) Like, oh, there's some CDs there. I own a lot of CDs. What if I write a story about someone who has so many CDs that they cover him in an avalanche and and they come to life and they eat his brain? And (laughs) like, that is not a real example, but it is (laughs) not much more outlandish than many of his actual examples. I've had a lot of fun doing research on this subject. Part of it is... Everybody knows about Stephen King. I feel like whether through his books or the film adaptations or the TV adaptations, he's made a mark on our culture since the 70s. So it's something that parents share with their children and their grandchildren. And I remember the first time I watched The Shining, I was probably far too young to watch The Shining, but I loved it. And I haven't read a ton of his books, but this is making me want to read more of them. And I've seen a lot of interviews now and the way he talks about his books and He's very passionate and ultimately very hopeful about life. So watching horror movies was a big thing of my adolescence, often with Brian, that we'd rent anything. And most of those memories are of things that are largely bad. Like, I'm just never going to see another Phantasm movie. Or I tried to sit through one of those, what's the one about the Rubik's Cube that... (laughs) (laughs) that explodes into hooks that rips you apart. Hellraiser. There you go. 
Oh, the Cenobites, yeah. Um, but there was Evil Dead. I mean, there were things that did age better. And as you're sure you're getting to, there was a fair amount of Stephen King. Yeah, so anything that had an actual plot was like good because there were so many that really didn't of those. I think it wasn't until I left grad school when I just kind of opened myself up to doing more frivolous things that I started reading Stephen King. And I went on a kick that I just read pretty much all of his books in a row. He's one of the few authors that his books are just so effortless that it's not very difficult, even with all the partial examined life reading and stuff I have to do, to fit in whatever the recent Stephen King book that has come out. Even if it's a big fat thing, you know, sell or whatever, like you could still generally read it in a couple days and they are constructed to grip you so that you do want to stay up and finish it that night. Well, most of them, right? That's at least the formula. That's right. I would beg to differ on The Gunslinger. Oh, the book I couldn't get through. Yeah, I, that's the, where I sort of drew my line with Stephen King. I feel like everything I picked up I would read, except for whatever reason that Dark Tower didn't do it for me. I, I did read quite a bit of Stephen King. In the early 90s, I spent a year overseas in Germany. And back in those days, you didn't have ready access to English language culture, right? You couldn't get TV shows right. that weren't dubbed, and the movies were hard to get to. But just because it's such an airport-type book, you could always get your hands on a Stephen King in English. And I read quite a lot of it, to the point where you really started to see repeated themes and tropes and just that writing style of his. Mark, I don't know how you read so much Stephen King in a row, because I find that it does get to be a bit of a chore to read the same reader, and not even to pick on him, but there's just those stylistic things that are the same over and over again. It's like... Don't you need a little bit of a break from that? So let's talk about that a little bit. How do you guys feel, having read a lot of Stephen King, would you consider him a great writer, one of the great writers? Or would you consider him just a good writer who's really entertaining? I think anybody that can write something that is just so easy to slip to the next sentence, slip to the next paragraph, that's got to be a skill into itself. And he has his book on writing where he talks about part of why that is the case, some of which is just... Like, don't use adverbs and don't use alternate words for said. Those are two rules that it sounds like it makes it simpler. It makes it, it dumbs it down a little bit, but like, that's what makes it so you can kind of ignore the style in some cases that a lot of it just lets the images slip into you more easily. Right. It's underappreciated when you do that well, that you can not really notice if you think there's no style, it's no, there is one, but it's just being done in such a way that it's not bringing attention to itself. It's like some movie makers want you to be aware that you're watching a movie and some just want you to be engrossed in the story itself. And the fact that you're watching a movie is lost on you or that piece kind of falls into the background. And I do think Stephen King does that really well. I think he is a very talented writer. We read some criticism or some analysis of whether what he's doing really is literature or not. That gets us way back to our first podcast on highbrow versus lowbrow. And is there really any value in drawing a distinction between fiction and literature? And he's doing something, right? It sounds like a lot of the critics about his work are kind of other authors that have kind of some sour grapes, right? You know, he sells really well. He has a massive amount of output. He's making too much money too fast and too many books. And I'm like, you know, like I get it. You know, the same thing happens with bands, right? It's like they're sellouts, they're total sellouts because they're like making all this money. 
right? If Harper Lee or J.D. Salinger had written 40 novels that made them a ton of money, we'd hate them too. But it's something how anyone who writes that much can't be good. His prolific output, I think, is a strike against him. You do anything for 10,000 hours? For mastery? Like, eventually, yeah, you're going to be good at something. And I feel like just the sheer output of what Stephen King does, yeah, of course he's good at it. And no, not all of his stories are going to be great, but you're going to have some diamonds there. In the writing world, they say your first million words are garbage. And so you have to write through them, but you have to do it in a focused and, I don't say introspective, but you, you can't just bang out a million words. You have to spend a million words trying to get better. And then you throw those away, and then you're finally doing something. But, you know, Mark has referenced Stephen King's advice. He also says that, you know, talent isn't enough. A lot of it's hard work. And he's seen a lot of people with talent who haven't succeeded for different reasons, but mostly because talent gets you only so far whether it was how much he persisted in submitting these things to get them published or the amount of time he spends revising or whatever it is, all the things that aren't seen as the artistic part but have to be done or you're not going to get anywhere. Right. So I watched this A&E biography. I was able to find it on YouTube. It was from 2002. One of the things they said in regards to that was that Stephen King, his father left when he was a kid and his mother had to take care of the whole family and they were extremely poor. And as he got older and he started to write, he started to submit some of these short stories to magazines and he was just getting no after no. And then he eventually found out that his father was a writer. He like found these papers and he saw all these rejection letters his father got. He went to his mom and was like, hey, so dad was a writer. And his mom was like, well, yeah, but your father had no tenacity. He didn't stay in this marriage and he didn't, you know, stay the course in his writing. And so that was something that Stephen King was trying to correct throughout his life. And it seems like he continues to do so still with the same wife and his kids and continues to write and is not going to give up on that. And writing with his kids. Right. Writing with his kids. And writing through a debilitating injury, right? He was hit by a car and it's painful for him to write. In fact, He's even taken polls among his readers on what he should write next, knowing that he does not have the physical ability to do it as much as he even wants to. When we think about how many more things, I think because he was injured in this, he was hit by a car when he was walking, to be, whether it's sitting and writing or whatever it is, it's just painful for him over long periods of time to be doing that. I could be getting that wrong a little bit, but I remember this whole Dr. Sleep, at one point he had put out a poll to his readers if he should do a sequel to The Shining or if he should do something else, and this is what they had decided on. There's a bit on Family Guy where they hit someone out walking and they think it's Stephen King and they say, oh no, it's Dean Koontz, and then they like back up over him and run him over a few more times. <laughs> oh, Had to mention Dean Koontz at one point during the Stephen King, so I figured that was the time. So there's also the question, even if you think he's a good writer in his own way, which Clearly, he's not a good writer in the same way that James Joyce is, but I don't really ever feel like reading James Joyce at any point. Yeah, who do you know who has finished James Joyce? Well, there are plenty of books that are not the the most difficult. Ulysses. Yes, exactly. That are not Ulysses. We read Portrait of an Artist in high school, so I, I know I got through that. Yep. You guys had a better education than I did in high school then. But you still might think that he, like a band, did his best work early on when he was still had things from his childhood to be inspired about. And I know we sent you the online version of The Body, which was the basis for Stand By Me, and I reread that in preparation for this. 
And that is excellent in every way that he can be excellent. You know, it's not a straightforward horror story, but there are certainly elements of that in there. It's a coming-of-age story. It's writing about childhood. It's writing about existential dread. You know, in fact, being a kid and realizing mortality. And it has things about being a writer. You know, of course, writers too often write about the experience of being a writer because you have to write about things that you know. But like the amount of stuff written about being a writer is much larger than the interest, I think, among the general populace in hearing about that particular experience. But it's done in such a way, you know, the kind of nested stories within the story that he can then cast in different ways. You know, he can kind of give you a story that's more literary, but say, this is something I wrote early on and it's crap. You know, this is the narrator of the story saying this. So it's just so clever in so many ways. And you can tell he's really channeling something authentic. And you might think, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, as he gets more and more further into his career, he's writing about less central experiences. He is recycling more and more. I think that's a sort of bit of a conventional wisdom that yes, Pet Cemetery and The Shining, these other older books, even though he wasn't as accomplished a stylist perhaps at that time, most of those are better than Under the Dome or whatever. I'm going to answer that with a couple of things and what that reminds me of. Okay, so there's an article from Vox that was published in October of 2018, which says, from being nerdy to being overweight to enduring acne, having kids also makes them uniquely outfitted to be conduits for readers' social anxieties and fears because of deep down we're all reliving the social terrors of school every day of our lives. So I think earlier on in your life, when, like, say, you're starting out and being a writer, you can draw on all those things that you're still feeling, you know, and you're still feeling like, what's my place in this world and where is all this anxiety coming from? And you're still very much feeling that. I would assume, yes, there's still some of that left over now that he's older, but to me, it'd be more of the fear of death as you get older. Maybe that's something that he'll begin to write more of and be inspired in a new way. Because he does talk about, as you get older, you're not as scared. And in writing Dr. Sleep, you know, he was worried about revisiting The Shining. And he was been worried about revisiting earlier works and expanding upon them because he's like, people read those when they're younger. And then, you know, of course they're scared. But as you get older, you're just not as scared of certain things. But yeah, you are. It's just those things change. You have new anxieties, right? And the anxieties around being a parent, as you say, or, or as you said about getting older or death or whatever, right? I agree that some of his primal ones he probably got at early, but you know you can get at them at different ways. You try again, or you do it slightly differently, or you realize, yeah, that was a very direct way of getting at something. I mean, those early ones, like looking at Carrie as this like crazy puberty story, it's hard to imagine a really old person writing that. He has other things that he's getting at with his later stuff. And I admit, what I've read is really his much earlier work. I think I've read a few of his later things, and they also tend to be less horror. I think things I've read most recently, one was straight fantasy, that Eyes of the Dragon that he wrote, and one was pretty much straight science fiction, the JFK novel, 112263, I think it was. And partly of growing as a writer is going into these other types of genres that Obviously, now we think of him doing a lot of things, but early on, it really was just horror and then these oddball things that he published under the name Richard Bachman because they didn't fit his brand. It was so important for him early on to be Stephen King, the horror writer, that anything that wasn't horror, he couldn't even publish as Stephen King. And part of that, I think it was also the publishing company saying like, no, 
we already have this novel. We like if you want to write something else, you can write it, but you need a different name. That's still done. There are still authors who publish under different names in different genres. I'm not sure if that's really the story. So I saw Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is 1982. So this is still pretty early when he is breaking away from writing pure horror. And most of the Richard Bachman are his novels that were really early and that he just thought were kind of shitty. He wanted to make some extra money off them. He wanted them to be out there, but he didn't necessarily want to associate them with his brand in that way. It's not because they weren't horror. I mean, The Running Man is definitely within the kind of horror that, you know, within the the scope of other things that he's done. Really, I thought his all his Bachman stuff, like Apt Pupil and The Long Walk and um, what was that, Rage? What was the one about the sh- shooter? Yeah, Rage. They weren't quite, you know, horror the way that Firestarters and Salem's Lot Vampires, they were a little different. And I do think you're right, they brought the brand down. I think they would have muddied what Stephen King was at the time. I didn't realize that apt pupil, I like, I completely forgot the apt pupil was him until I was like looking up film adaptations, which that was fantastic. Did you guys see the movie? Yes. I don't remember if I did. I don't think so. I, I read the book. Yeah. I, I can picture, was it Brad Renfro or someone like that? Yes, Brad Renfro. Good deep dig. I was trying to think of his name. He- Brian, you're actually wrong. App People, again, 1982, it was under the Different Seasons novella just by Stephen King. It's not a Bachman. All right, we're going to edit that part out where Mark said, Brian, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so Shawshank Redemption and The Body were actually both part of that same collection. That in itself, called Different Seasons, maybe that was an indication of these are non-standard for his oeuvre. So his most recent novels, what have they dealt with thematically? Revival, for instance, was one. It starts as a kind of a biographical thing for this character. There was a preacher in town that faith healed his brother, basically. And then he becomes an addict later, and the same preacher kind of gets him off addiction. And so then now he's Stephen King's age, and he's talking about a lot of the things like playing rhythm guitar in a cover band <laughs> that Stephen King has experienced or, you know, playing as a session guy. He's a musician and charts how this guy progresses. And it turns very, very dark. One of our articles actually kind of reveals, and this is one of my early comments, that a lot of it turns actually on seeing what actually it is like after death, that when this guy finally gets around to bringing somebody back from the dead, that triggers something in all the people he has previously done faith healings on because now the barrier between the really quite horrible afterlife and our world has gotten thinner. There's always a lot of mixture in his books between the horror elements and his just trying to write a kind of standard setting-based novel, and I compare it to like John Irving or something because John Irving is also very readable, and like the Cider House rules, he would just go way into figuring out like how a cider house works. <laughs> and so Stephen King, like many authors, does a lighter version of that. I think I read somewhere where he'll like, you know, so he's written something about flying a plane and he'll show it to somebody who actually flies planes to see, did I say it wrong or should I be more vague? <laughs> like he wants to be right enough to get the point across, but maybe, you know, depending on what the thing is, Maybe not as interested in exploring the intrinsic character of the setting, but I guess that's maybe one of the things that people argue about on you know whether he's a good writer or not. He does get enough into what it's like to live with a single mom in this kind of rural area or what, whatever the thing is, 
but he doesn't take those trips into foreign lands quite as thoroughly as someone like Irving. Stephen King is very much is so close to his point of view characters in a way that I don't think John Irving always is. John Irving likes to go walking around to see the world a little bit, whereas King's characters are so introspective, or even if they're not introspective, we know what they're feeling and what they're going through in a very intimate way. I think that's partly what keeps us moving along with him is he does such a good job of painting that picture of the main character, even if in a short story where that's hard to do, that we want to give that emotional investment and go along for the ride to the point where, and we were talking earlier on about some of his tropes, even that internal narrator voice, which can be a little irritating sometimes in italics, the character talking to himself like, whoa, Bubba, you're losing it. It's like, okay, that's something you seem to do a lot, but I see the purpose of it and I see the value of that for his storytelling. Yes. One of the themes that he enjoys is is really finding how to empathize. He wants the audience to empathize with his characters, right? I was watching this interview with him talking about The Shining and how he didn't like Kubrick's version of it because it was too cold. And he wasn't a huge fan of Jack Nicholson's portrayal because he felt disconnected from that character and that Shelley Duvall's character was, he said, it's one of the most misogynistic characters on screen you know she's just completely powerless you know it's always been one of my favorite movies but now like seeing it from his perspective yeah i I can understand his gripes about it and after that point he decided he needed to have a say in the film adaptation since then and some of them have been successful and some of them have really not been but you know i admire that he's like no something was lost in that and i want people to connect with those characters and see something of themselves in those characters kind of like a, a moral story writer if you look at it that way this seems a good time to kind of transition into just even though his books are so widely read a lot more people are more familiar with the movie adaptations which have been such a mixed bag and it's really over the years changed quite a bit in how much power he has or how much he even cares about it, or how respectful the various adapters are to his original versions. So that when you mention Brian 11, that there's a Hulu adaptation, that is pretty much beat for beat. I think that is the, and I saw there was a one I did not watch for Mr. Mercedes on some channel right now, one of his other 2014 books, that, you know, if you're turning to a whole series, like, you can still do it in a dumb way. This is a topic for another time. You could elaborate it in ways that make it actually boring or don't get the tone right, or there's still lots of ways to screw it up. Let's kind of open that up. Yeah, peak TV is a good thing for Stephen King. Writing these 600-page novels just don't lend themselves to a two-hour movie in a way that if you can do 10 hours well, it really is a much better medium for his novels. It's no accident, I think, that his most beloved movie adaptations are based on short stories or novellas, right? I think of the perennial number one on IMDb is Shawshank oh, yeah. Redemption, and that's longer than a short story, but not a novel. I don't know if it's a novelette or a novella. And Stand By Me is also well-regarded as a movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember being impressed with it. The Shining and Carrie are a couple examples that are different, but those were actually much shorter novels. Back in the day, they were basing these things on the source work. Those were not 600-page books, as I recall, early on. They were quite a bit shorter. Although The Shining was then made into that, because for the reasons Erica pointed out, into a TV miniseries, which was kind of the halfway point between the full peak TV, full series, or limited series, 
I shouldn't even say limited series because Under the Dome was just going to be like lost. Like it wasn't that awesome (laughs) and could not survive more than three seasons or whatever it did. But it's amazing. It, It was sort of set up that it could be independent. Well, neither could Lost survive three seasons, and yet it did anyway. So, <laughs> oh wait, that's a different podcast. And The Shining, in particular, I mean, so yes, he got to have it tell the story in the slow way that he wanted to, at the expense because of having Stephen Weber as the main character from Wings, <laughs> who is a better actor than you think in that role, but still is no Nicholson. And other things about you know that they would just have to compromise on the budget. Did either of you see The Shining? remake or the tv series but now i did at the time i'm kind of interested to now because if it's closer to what he wanted i can't help but wonder what it's like it is funny that the old dynamic is still in play with the dark tower whoever said his longest series let's make it into a movie that's an hour and a half that's a (laughs) fast-paced action movie that has a few characters that sort of resemble things from the books it was so bad I was so disappointed. I love Idris Elba, and man, that was a disappointment. HBO is going to start airing The Outsider. Mm -hmm. Is that a book that you guys are familiar with? I did read that recently, yes. That came out in 2018. And that's actually a, he's continuing, so one of the characters is from that sort of detective agency that's set up in Mr. Mercedes and Finders Keepers. Great. And End of Watch. So it looks really good. It's coming out in January. It looks like Jason Bateman is starring in it. Oh. And Ben Mendelsohn, who is absolutely fantastic in the world, finally is noticing how fantastic he is, and Cynthia Erivo. So it sounds like definitely it's going to be one to watch based on what I've seen. And then we have Castle Rock, which, of course, he didn't write, but it's based on what he has written and the world building that he's created. Have either of you delved into that anymore or no? I thought that was required watching for this podcast. I watched the first season, yeah. There's only one season so far. Are they making another one? No, the second season, I believe, has been released. What? Let me make sure. I was on the Hulus, and I thought I just saw season one. Actually, no, we are at October 20th. It looks like it'll be released October 23rd. That explains why the person who's on the cover of Castle Rock is not in any of the Castle Rock episodes I saw. All right. No, no. There, so there are seasons into themselves, it looks like. They're all in the same world, but I think this season's supposed to expand outside. I think it's going to go more into like the Salem's Lot town. Is it called Salem's Lot, or is, is it actually? Yes. Yeah, it is in the book. Yeah. So what did you think of Castle Rock? I enjoyed it. I mean, it was fun. It was kind of TV that I half paid attention to and was half doing something else while I was watching it. thought it was really well acted. I would agree with some of the critics when they're like, but really, where was it going? And did all the stories actually make sense together? No, I feel like it did loosely. I think they could have cut a few of those ideas, like the couple that comes in and creates the murder house. Yeah, I agree that some of the things rambled a little bit or didn't stay focused. Yeah. On the whole, I thought it was actually smarter than a Stephen King story. I think some of what they did was not something he would have done in a way that I really appreciated. Are we spoiling this? Are we going for it? Sure. I think it was episode eight or nine where we got the alternate universe where <gasps> it turns out the other boy was Henry Devers and the, the son of the... That was so flippin' smart. I just, I was just smiling the whole time. And that was after an episode where they kind of showed us what it was like to be partly having dementia and partly being Billy Pilgrim, who's unstuck in time from Kurt Vonnegut and it was so beautifully written and 
acted and using these chess pieces that kept bringing her back to modern times, oh I was God. thinking, this is really better TV than I deserve. Like early on, I thought it was a little slow, but as we got towards the end there, and now like watching that program, like just walking around the house and just like seeing a knife on the counter, I'd get nervous. There's just like a thing about having a chaos agent who is not Pennywise the clown. He doesn't attack you, but just being present, like just things start to go poorly. It made me really happy that season of Castle Rock. I thought the Sissy Spacek episode, the dementia episode, was a very fine hour of television. Sure. A storytelling in general. I've seen a couple of plays that deal with dementia and Alzheimer's, and they're always terrifying because it's showing it from that person's perspective. And man, ooh, to even entertain the idea that they are actually seeing what's true and everybody else is the crazy person is absolutely terrifying. So maybe that would be more fun for him to delve into as he gets older is talking about memory and time and the confusion and pain of getting older in that way. There's something to be commented on at length, probably in some other episode, about the advantages of not having a single writer. I'm trying to find out of Castle Rock, like, are there different writers for every episode, like a normal TV show? There were, I think, as I was looking at the showrunners or the creators, I think were early on the writers and possibly directing, but I don't think it was the same person the whole way through. Yeah, I heard this with regard to The Walking Dead, that it's nice, Robert Kirkman wrote the graphic novel and it's a singular voice. Yes, the illustrator is getting some of the imagery worked out and what the characters look like, and you know that's of course important, but in terms of what actually happens in the plot, it's just one guy thinking about it. And you might think there's some a purity about that, but that's a good example of one where it might actually help to have multiple people. And, you know, Kirkman has said this and he's been had a role on the TV show of, you know, it's kind of better if you have more heads, especially if you have an ensemble cast and things from multiple points of view that you could really, you know, like in the show Lost, where you have different people who are the center. You know, this is very typical of a lot of King's novels. And you might wonder if King is doing the best He's channeling a divorced woman, you know, whatever these different characters' points of views are, somebody who's been the victim of domestic violence as best he can. And again, I don't know what kind of research he does. It's certainly not John Irving level, like, I'm going to go live among these people for six months. So having multiple people involved to kind of at least make the characters and their reactions more authentic seems a really good idea. And also just to think, like, do these plot twists make sense? So this could be a reason why Castle Rock actually could be a stronger production than some of the other. Again, Under the Dome might be an example of where that doesn't work, where having multiple people makes it actually a a little worse, even though it has a lot of the original juice from the book. Right. The writer's room is a phenomenon that's been talked about on different shows and to good effect. I heard them talking about it with Breaking Bad. And you can have land on a good idea, but the group still knows that, yeah, we're not there yet. Let's keep going. Just because it works well doesn't mean we're done. So it's hard to say. I tend to get nervous when there's more than one creator. I mean, I think you're definitely right. Obviously, there are some great groups of people that work well together and they can make something greater than any one person could have. But I think that takes a lot of the right people at the right place at the right time. And you can definitely get too many cooks in there. It's unusual to see a full show where every episode is written by... I mean, actually, the episode itself, I'm thinking maybe True Detective. I'm not even sure about that. I know, like, watching recently Stranger Things, the Duffer Brothers write a number of them, but not 
every episode and it's just a lot of work. There's a lot of effort to write a TV script and to write a full 10 of them and get it cranked out like that. But then like Fleabag, right? Didn't she write every episode? Well, I'm sure she did. You know, so like, I mean, yes, are you able to create as much content? Maybe not as a single person, but maybe it's better content. And possibly the reason that Castle Rock can work is if they get the right people in the room together, it's still based on the ideas of one person, right? It's still based on the world that one person created. And then they can take what they believe are the best of those ideas and create something new. Well, let's think about a a few more. So did you guys watch this, just to make it timely, Netflix released this in the tall grass? No. I'm about halfway through it, but you can spoil it for me. But if you do, I'm going to scream. So this just, I just (laughs) thought this was an example of something that was based on a short story. It's co-written by Joe Hill, so it's one of his sons. You know, it's a short story. You probably don't have to change a lot of it. You could just show what's in the story. And I thought the movie was pretty sharp. It was a good, enjoyable time. There were some sort of confusing or cheesy elements about it. And then this morning, I actually looked at the story. Actually, it's exactly the same dynamic. So I also reread the original Children of the Corn story and thought about that cheesy 80s movie that was based on it, where the original story is just a nasty thing happens to some people. And in fact, in the Children of the Corn short story, they're nasty people. Like they're set up as this bickering couple and... They go in and find this horrible thing and die. And that's the short, like, you can do that in a short story. Stephen King has said, like, he recognizes, so for instance, Misery was supposed to be a short story originally, and it was going to end with the stalker fan character creates a cover for the book that she forced him to write out of his skin. <laughs> that was going to be the end of the story. But as oh it expanded, he's like, readers are going to want to kill me if I, if I actually make an, a whole, like good has to triumph over evil if you have a certain amount invested in the characters. But for a short story, you can just make it as nasty, brutish, and short as you want. So that's actually in the tall grass, like kind of how the short story is as well. It's maybe because... He wrote it with his son. I don't know that it's kind of a throwback to his old writing style of they discover this weirdness about the grass and how you can go five feet into it and suddenly be lost and people can yell from you inside and you can think that they're right there and go in after them. But then you are hopelessly lost and you try to find each other and you're shifting around like it's a cool initial idea, a cool mechanic. But then in this movie version, they felt the need to add a whole second act so that things could work out okay and there's a time travel element and all this stuff that's not in the original story. So it was clearly, you know, somebody who I think respected the original material but was like, this is not enough to be a movie or I can do better. I can use my imagination and be inspired by this to tell a different story. Sounds like the Hunger Games when they would go into the woods and hear the voices of people that they had lost. Mm. Oh, you guys haven't seen or read the Hunger Games, huh? No, I have. I'm trying to remember that detail. Was that in the movies or in the in the book? Both. I think it was maybe a bird. There's a call that sounded just like... Yep, a mockingbird or whatever. Yeah. Was it the Mockingjay itself? Actually, I think it was. <laughs> Actually, I think that may have been... <laughs> All that's right. not a minor detail. That's <laughs> wow. How did you come up with that? How did you remember that name? Yeah, I'm, that was a that was a dig for me. I want to say, by the way, of doing our homework for this podcast, I discovered how to play back TV shows at faster than regular speed. It's pretty awesome. I know I, we've talked about listening <laughs> to podcasts and audiobooks that way. I've been watching a lot of this at around 1.5 to 1.75 speed. 
I'm not sure I can go back to regular speed television. This is really nice. Like Castle oh, Rock, no. you did that oh, with? No. And the first half of uh, In the Tall Grass, actually, on Netflix. It's amazing uh, how quickly you get used to it. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Wait, are you doing this in the Netflix app? Or are you doing it like on your TV? Or like, wh- How do you speed it up? I learned that there is a Chrome extension called Super Browse and maybe some other ones where if you run the Netflix or Hulu through a browser rather than on an app, then you can turn up the speed and, and watch it. That is the way I feel like that sometimes movie versions or TV adaptations can be significantly worse than the books. Like They're covering for the fact that you can't have this inner monologue by trying to go heavy on the cinematography and just like how long it takes them to walk across the room and look at stuff. And that can be effective or it can make things totally terrible. We, we should have a Neil Gaiman episode at some points, but American Gods was one of his few actual novels. And the first season was so promising and they changed showrunners and stuff completely for the second season. And the second season are just like each episode is a music video that's an hour long and it's just so boring. It's so boring. So being able to use that feature on that would have been really nice. I found that the tone of In the Tall Grass, though, I enjoyed it. I would not have wanted to sacrifice the appeal of just how frustrated they were running through the grass. <laughs> I ran across an article where someone was saying that they finally find Modern Family really funny watching it sped up. It's like the jokes like really hit so hard and the pace is so good. And Now that I can see, I would say in suspense, aren't you losing something by losing that time? It's, it's all about timing. I don't know. Probably, yeah. I mean, the same is actually true of listening to audiobooks. And you lose nuance and you speed it up. There's just no way that a a difference in pauses, you just can't notice the difference when they're sped up. But I sacrifice it in order to consume more. And I had some other things I was trying to consume as well. And And you had a good meal, huh? Peak TV has driven me to this, yeah. You know, since we're on audiobooks, I should mention, so Stephen King has narrated some of his stuff himself recently. So I ended up listening to... Elevation is one of his recent short novels, and he narrates it himself. It's an example of just a silly premise that like, he does some interesting things with, and it does have some heart to it, but it's just, what if when you lose weight, you're losing weight, but you're actually not losing mass? You step on the scale, and it measures less every day, even though you don't look any thinner. And you can even put marbles in your pockets, and you'll still weigh less and less. Like It won't affect your scale, so you're somehow being detached from gravity. That is the premise. I think your CD premise from earlier made more sense than this one, but all right. <laughs> As an audio narrator, though, it's very much the same, like that he's kind of flat about it and he really doesn't try to do the voices. Like it's his own characters, but it's, there's something in some way superior to just saying the words and not trying to, oh, I hit a new character and now I've got to do a voice, you know, That's that so I've heard surprising real actors. Mark, because. <laughs> More close voices. You know, early on, he narrated a short story where he was doing like a French waiter who lost his mind and was stabbing customers. And he was doing this most ridiculous <laughs> accent. I'm like, why are you doing this, man? Was, did you just do this for the sake of getting to narrate? He probably wrote it with the accent. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's just a lesson he learned. <laughs> That's sort of an episode topic unto itself. Right, because Neil Gaiman has also done a lot of his own narration, and he is so good at it, right? He just He's so connected to his work, and hearing him essentially give a reading of his own pieces are, is really spectacular, I think. I'm in. I think if they want to do it and they know exactly how they want it to be read, that's awesome. We don't need voices. I think I tried listening to something by the guy that did Satanic Verses, Salman Rushdie, 
And I just could not get through like even five minutes of it that he just had such a bad voice that it just made me glaze over immediately. <laughs> so yeah, it's good when they read their intros and then let the pros take over if they can't manage it. Sure. That's a good compromise. I like hearing the voice of the author to just get a little grounded in the story sometimes. So we got to talk about it before we're done here. Did you guys get around to watching part two? Yes, definitely. It was required watching. So yeah. <laughs> also, what did you think? I wish I could have seen it at 1.75 speed. Yeah, I was disappointed in the second one. I actually really enjoyed the first one. I saw it with my family when I was back home on a visit. And my parents, neither of them were big fans of it because they liked the book and they liked the miniseries better. But I was too young to remember the miniseries too much. So I thought it was a really good adaptation. Also, I think the kids were just so charming that I loved it. And I think the second movie, we missed the charm of the children and the dread that kids have of growing up and losing their innocence. So the second one, I mean, it was fine. I just didn't find it nearly as scary. I didn't find the characters as empathetic. What did you think, Mark? I kind of wish I had rewatched part one right before part two, because I agree that part one was very effective, and I think it was way better than the old miniseries. The old miniseries is just so not scary, and maybe if you saw it when you were 13 or something, that would be better. But I don't know, it is one of my favorite books of his, and very hard to adapt, but I thought part one did a pretty good job of it. When we get to part two, like I knew that they had structured it, unlike the book where the adults are not going to show up until the second half, whereas I think the book, the adults are there right at the beginning, and the whole thing is just flashbacks to present, flashbacks to present. So saving that for part two, I guess, made it more coherent, more more like distinctly a different thing. But then when there were flashbacks, it was weird. It was like, wait, didn't we already do this? But it, no, each of us has to remember more from that old time and that'll give some keys to how we can defeat the demon this time. It was strangely disconnected for me in a way that it might not have been if I had just seen them directly in a row. I'm not really sure. I thought the adult actors did a good job. The fortune cookie scene I thought was pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know one of the problems, Brian, you'd expressed just in general about Stephen King's ultimate evils, <laughs> as opposed to somebody like Lovecraft what did you think about like the way that it actually wrapped up here in them confronting? You know, part of it is this or evil that is the big bad, but it's also shown so much on the screen, right? It's this orgy of special effects and it's in our faces so much in a way that we never really see the evil in Castle Rock. It's this engine right. that drives everything, but it's under the surface. And you can't figure out what it is, and that's part of Mm -hmm. the terror of it. That's exactly right. And when you see too much of it, I feel like it's not scary anymore. And all you're really relying on now are jump scares. And having things come at you so quickly, you have no choice but to be startled. Or things just being gross, which there was plenty of that also. But Pennywise is really at his scariest when he's a friendly clown. And he's as soon as he becomes a monster, he is just not that interesting to watch. And so coming in close to three hours, that's kind of a big ask for me. You're right. Well, we know what to do with monsters, right? We know we have to slay monsters or we have to run from monsters. But if when we don't know what the monster is, that's the terrifying part. And when we don't know what the monster is capable of. Speaking of visual orgies, let's talk about the controversy. You all have read it, right? Indeed. Mm -hmm. So tell me what you know about this controversial child orgy scene and or what you remember of it, if anything, from reading the book. I read the book in my 20s and I didn't remember it even existed. So 
I think I looked back to this because we had Emily Perkins on a past Partially Examined Life episode, and we asked her about this specifically and whether she knew because she was the played the little girl in the TV version of this. And it was something that was just kind of a joke around who's going to tell Emily that like in the story, she has sex with all the boys at some point. Yeah. So it is just something that is not graphically depicted even in the book. I think it falls into the category you're saying, you know, that what makes the evil most effective is that it's not described. This is what I was referring to as Lovecraftian. When it's something that is wholly other, wholly beyond what we could even understand without going crazy. And so glossing over things, this seems antithetical to Stephen King's world building. The fact that he wrote The Dark Tower to sort of bring together all his different books and they're all in a part of a multiverse But still, even with that, even given this tendency, he still tries to leave the scary parts at least. He thinks, you know, it's explicitly said that he thinks it's more effective if you make it more Lovecraftian, if you make it more indescribable. And so I think that is likewise this ritual of chud or what the kids do in terms of sort of merging themselves together, forming this bond, having this orgy is left largely unstated. Is also, you know, you're fighting mystery with mystery sort of. What Stephen King says about it here, we have this article from New Musical Express. He said it connects childhood and adulthood. It's another version of the glass tunnel that connects the children's library and the adult library. Times have changed since I wrote that scene, and there is now more sensitivity to those issues. It's fascinating to me that there has been so much comment about that single sex scene and so little about multiple child murders. That must mean something, but I'm not sure what. I like that quote a lot. I remember years ago, there was a controversy about these trading cards because it was all these different action heroes and how one had a cigar in his mouth and one had a cigarette in his mouth. And what are we teaching kids? These guys are also all holding like weapons, like like flamethrowers and machine guns. And it's like, I think that's probably a bigger concern, but that must mean something, but I'm not sure what. Well, we can't concern ourselves with bigger concerns. Bigger concerns are too difficult. We'll talk about the sex and the cigarettes. Yeah. Doesn't feel like it was written as an orgy as such, right? And it definitely, I do remember rereading that scene when the first movie came out. And it's clear what's happening, but it's also pretty tame as it's written. And it not written to pique salacious interest, I don't think, for whatever that's worth. Right. Good. Well, I mean, I don't have more of an explanation than what we talked about. I don't have a hot take about it, but I think it's something that we should mention because there's not a ton of big controversies like that. It seems like in his work, there's this, and then there's the fact that he pulled rage from publication because several teenagers cited it as their inspiration for mass shootings or classroom shootings. So he does seem like a writer who does care a lot about public good and what he can do to help that. His works, as he talks about them, are definitely not trying to inspire this type of hysteria in people, but rather to maybe teach us something about our own selves and how terror can influence our lives, and whether that be in a hysterical way or to make us grow up and realize how to conquer something. If you write so many horrible things, you're going to presage almost any horrible thing that somebody actually does. So that I think in Insomnia it was that he wrote about planes crashing into buildings. Mr. Mercedes, you know, recently about a terrorist act of somebody just stealing a large car and then going to a public place and running over a bunch of people. Like, And then that happens in Europe within a year or two after this book comes out. Right. You can't just pull from publication all of these things. Did you guys watch Unbelievable on Netflix? Not yet. 
one of the things they mention on Unbelievable, this is, I don't think this is a spoiler, but they say like, there's a reason that people are getting away and like getting better at killing people. And it's because like there are all these TV shows are out showing people like, oh, this is how you clean up your DNA. And this person made a terrible mistake leaving this behind. And so now, yeah, people are getting better at covering their tracks. So often you'll hear the police will go on someone's browser and if you looked up rat poison right before killing your spouse, you can use that. But if you've just been watching Dexter, like, is that really, can they pin that on you? It's just just watching the TV, man. (laughs) Doesn't seem like it unless that person goes back and says it was because they watched Dexter because they went in out. I feel like I read, I don't remember which show this referred to, but you know, something about that they leave some crucial element of how you would actually recreate this out. You can't actually make meth from watching Breaking Bad. Maybe that was one of the kind of, you know, it's a common thing. You know, it's close, but it's not actually all there. Did you try? (laughs) I'm in my murder basement right now. It's also (laughs) my meth basement. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a a good length, I think. Any... We've opened a lot of boxes that we could definitely explore in more detail. That's our aim with this podcast is a good length. (laughs) It's a good length. I thought you were going to say it's to open boxes. Open boxes and never really answer them. Just explore the boxes. Maybe we'll open another box next time. All right, I need to know what everyone's favorite Stephen King is. Why, I'm glad you asked, because I forgot to bring this up. So from a Buick 8 is I think my favorite. It's a very Lovecraftian story. It sounds like it's kind of cheesy that it sort of has a Christine kind of thing that there's just a car that has been impounded and it is sort of a gateway to another horrible world and it comes from it into your world. Like everybody that's around just kills it because they just feel like it doesn't belong here. They're gripped by a primal, like we need to just destroy this thing. And the way that that was told, I just felt like was so effective and it was so relatively simple. It's a fairly short novel that I really enjoyed that one. And maybe partially because it has not yet been, I'm reading, there have been discussions about turning it into something and it's been licensed a couple times. George Romero was supposed to direct a movie about it starting 2005 that was announced, but that... Toby Hooper was going to replace him, had problems attaining financing. There is a different adaptation right now in development. Erica? Well, I'll have to go with The Stand. I think it was fantastic. And for those of you who aren't avid readers like me, sometimes I'll get into a series and I'll read. And other times, you know, it may be a year until I read something else. So if you're not like a big old reader, trust me, if I can get through The Stand, you can. And it was... Fantastic. And I was trying to think of, uh, if we would just want to loop in films to this, how can you not say that Shawshank is like one of the best movies ever? It's just so great. Way to go out on a limb there. That's great. I know. I really did. The Green Mile. There you go. But I definitely think that people should see Apt Pupil if you haven't seen it. It was surprising and small. It's a small film in a way. Like it felt small and contained, but it's terrifying in its own right and very well acted. What is yours? For me, I'm going to actually, I sometimes have trouble separating a story from the narrator when I've listened to them a lot. And this is because I was doing a fair bit of driving and Stephen King is so easy to listen to. And this probably was CDs at the time. But Anne Heche narrated the novel, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, about a girl getting lost in the woods. And it was just such a good experience. I think I listened to the whole thing while driving at night. And I think they're making it into a movie. One of the lists online of things from Stephen King in production. 
or coming up was The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. And is it a horror book? Uh, it is presented as horror. Okay. But the, I won't reveal what the big bad is. It's being lost in the woods, though. We can say that much. It is, yeah, it's a lost in the woods horror story. Yeah. Did you notice that I said horror like I'm from the Northeast? Horror like a crazy person? I mean, a Northeasterner? I say horror and everybody up here makes fun of me. They said it sounds like I'm saying whore. That's the way those people do up in that place, I are. Horror. See? That's huge. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> Whose idea was this podcast? It was great. It was Mark's. I think it was Mark. I think it's usually Mark. You win first prize, Mark. I will also give a shout out to the Gerald's Game version that's on Netflix. I thought that was an excellent adaptation, even though... Ooh, I've been wondering if I should watch that. Okay. All right. Yeah. Whereas The Stand, that also, I really, really like that book, but it is actually lessened in my imagination from having seen the TV miniseries with Rob Lowe and Molly Ringwald and... <sighs> <laughs> it was just not that awesome. Are we going to end our podcast on a heavy sigh? We can't do that. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, again, I would recommend The Body as something for beginners to try because he is unapologetic about his flaws as a writer, but he's channeling real stuff a lot of the time. There's a lot of truth per square inch. There are different kinds of excellence, and he's definitely got some of them. And there's a there's just a reason why he's the most famous author in the world. And I want to say, like, in the uh, unlikely event, uh, maybe not unlikely, that he ever listens to this, thank you to Stephen King for years and years of excellent output. And no matter what the critics say, continuing to write and continuing to create. And I think that's an inspiration for anybody, especially people who are involved in some creative field to just not stop, no matter if you're getting great reception or lukewarm reception on what you do. The most important thing is to just keep doing it. Also, Outlander, we have your woman. There you go. Let's stop on Erica's. That's a lovely sentiment, which I will rebut on our after talk. Oh, do it. Yes. Go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop to hear us talk a little more about this. Pop, pop, pop. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.